the word of the Lord. Uh, they went to uh, um, Capernaum, right? And when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Good morning, Highland. A couple weeks ago, we started talking about how remarkable Mark begins his gospel. Because he doesn't start at the beginning. John the Baptist just appears in the Jordan baptizing and away we go. And I want us to think about that for just a minute as we we think about how Mark frames the story of Jesus, uh, particularly the start of each book. And in the book of Matthew, Jesus begins by climbing a mountain, which should remind us a little bit of Moses. And he begins probably one of the most famous parts of the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, in which he reaches back into Scripture and begins to reinterpret what the law means now. You've heard it was said, but I say to you. In Luke, Jesus begins with a powerful sermon in his hometown, which makes his home church pretty upset. In John, Jesus begins his ministry at a wedding. And it's kind of this awkward wedding where the the groom hasn't bought enough wine yet, and and Jesus' mother says, hey, let's not embarrass this family, help them out. But there's something else happening there. In the entire book of John, it's never just one level. There's always something else happening. It's not just this, this bride being married to this groom. It's us being invited into the kingdom, a wedding with God, to begin to experience that abundant life. Well, Matthew, Mark, or excuse me, Matthew, Luke, and John all begin in ways that make sense. Mark begins with an exorcism, which is kind of odd. Talking about experimentation with exorcism may be the quickest way to ruin a dinner party conversation, even in church. Because I imagine there's some of us today who have come here for the first time, or even better, you, you brought some friends or family, and you can imagine that inward cringe when the preacher gets up and announces today's sermon will be about exorcism and miraculous healing. But Mark begins his gospel with intentionality. Mark begins with a fundamental statement that if you want to believe who Jesus is, you need to understand what Jesus does. If you'd like to know who Jesus is, then you need to understand what Jesus does. 
pray with me, please. Father God, we are so grateful to be gathered together. And Father, I confess along with everyone here that we have brought all sorts of parts with us, the parts that adore you and love you, and the parts, quite frankly, sometimes choose darkness. And Father, we bring our entire selves complete to you. And we ask that you bless us, reveal your love to us. And Father, in those broken pieces, mend us to make us whole. Shape us so that we look a little more like your son, Jesus. And Father, to that end now, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. So what do we do with demons? I want us to wrestle with that idea today for a little bit. What do we do with demons? I think it's complicated because we live in an age of skepticism, and we also live in a time of the tyranny of the new. Let me unpack those two ideas. We live in a time of the tyranny of the new, which means that technology advances at such a pace for us that we always think the newest thing is the best thing. Nobody wants an iPhone 5 when you can have an iPhone 6. And nobody would be seen with an iPhone 6 once the iPhone 7 comes out because we need what's new because what's new is what's best. At the same time, on top of that, we live in an age of skepticism, which means that we don't trust everything that's told to us. And we don't take everything that's said at face value because we know that there are a lot of different opinions and different ideas. And what we'd really like is things to be verified. Thank you very much. And so spirituality and mysticism, demons, I don't know what to do with that. That view that we live with wasn't true a couple hundred years ago. I mean, you think about the stories that people used to tell their children, stories like Hansel and Gretel and Goldilocks and the Three Bears and those other stories where there were, there were warnings not to go out into the woods. If you go out into the woods, you need to be careful because there's dangerous things out there, things that could hurt you, sprites and fairies. And not everything that has mystic experiences for you, there are dangerous things. But we don't live in that era anymore. But maybe we do. Just a few years ago, I, I spent some time in the Bronx, and I, I had a headache, so I went to the, the Corner Botanica, which is kind of like a 7-Eleven in kind of the Mid-South Bronx. And, and I went to the, the headache section, and there were three options there for me to choose. I could take ibuprofen, or I could burn some sage, or I could buy a candle that I could light to Santa Maria. And all of those were reasonable options not long ago, to fix my headache. And we have a renewed fascination with magic, supernatural stuff, in movies and TV. There's all sorts of shows that talk about powers. I mean, we love wizards. On the other side of that same coin, we love the technology that can do the same thing. You get that, right? Like Iron Man and Doctor Strange are the same guy. They use the same magic <laughs> to achieve their goals. But 
I'm not sure if those movies help us understand or, or respect spiritual warfare. Uh, we live in a time that Richard Beck calls the Scooby-Dooification of evil. And you remember Scooby-Doo, right? If, you, if it's too old for you or too young for you, Scooby-Doo was this, this cartoon that I grew up with. And it was, it was Fred and Daphne and Velma and Shaggy. And the dog in the movie in the middle is Scooby. And basically, it was the same plot every time, no matter what. By the way, the dog talks, but he only talks to Shaggy, which makes me wonder exactly what's happening in the back of that mystery van. Anyway, so it's the same plot every time. They pull up into a new town, and there's some sort of scary thing happening there. There's monsters, or there's ghosts, or there's some sort of supernatural force, and it's scaring people, and it's hurting people, and they do what any modern skeptic would do. They begin to investigate and do a little detective work, and they and then there's always this like cutscene where there's a bunch of chasing. It's really funny. They open doors. It's hilarious if you're four. And uh, but by the end of the show, the same thing always happens. They catch the ghost, and they unmask the ghost. They literally pull the mask off of whatever uh, is scaring everyone, and it's never really a ghost. It's actually some person. There are no monsters. There's no ghosts. There's no demons. Just evil people who would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for you meddling kids. And so I want us to reflect on what Scooby-Doo is telling us about our culture. There are no evil spirits. There are just evil people, greedy people, manipulative people. Scooby-Doo is a startling application of the process of the demystification of our culture. A modern interpreter might say what Jesus is encountering here in Capernaum probably isn't a demon or an unclean spirit. It's more likely mental illness. And you might take that further to say that the devil, demons, all of that is really just a symbolic representation of evil in our world. And after all, isn't it easier to believe in God and Jesus if you don't also have to buy into all of that hocus pocus? I think sometimes devils or demons are presented as a psychological distancing, distancing tactic so that we can avoid guilt and shame. It's not me who did it. It was, it was the devil that made me do it. This idea goes all the way back to the garden. Remember, Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the snake. Beck notes that everything hinges on how you interpret texts like Ephesians 6 and how you understand the powers and the principalities. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 12, For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what exactly do we think the powers and the principalities are? If you think those might be demons, that's going to shape the way that you pray and what you would do. You might begin to explore exorcism. Or maybe the powers and principalities are payday loan lenders or human sex traffickers and the systems which systematically oppress and dehumanize others. If that's the way you read this text, then your response is going to be very different. 
And I think in some levels, speaking, thinking in these terms serves us up to a point. But it doesn't really matter because when you join the kingdom, you become active in helping the kingdom that is flourishing around you. Another way to say that is if, if God is leading us into light, then there was a time when we must have lived in darkness. If God is us leading us into truth, then there is a place that must be a lie. And there exists this kind of duality of darkness and light and falsehood and truth. And regardless how you articulate the metaphysics as a demon or not, you need to be involved in being in the process of bringing others to light. And so I want to pause here and confess to you that this is part of my faith where there's, there's a little bit of a rub. And I've been thinking and, and working on this for some time. And I've heard a lot of voices from a lot of different places. In fact, I even got into an argument about this with my acupuncturist when I was in California. I don't know the wisdom of getting debating somebody that's sticking you with needles. But that's where, where we were. By the way, I shouldn't have read this study until after I was done with my therapy. But Mayo did this uh, study where they did an A-B test. And they, they had 50% um, of the people that were being stuck by acupuncturists and the other 50% that were just being stuck randomly. And I can't imagine what it's like to be in that second group, but it doesn't sound like any fun at all. And the conclusions were uh, about an even number of people were healed in, in either case except that my acupuncturist, who was a believer, he was born in China, he grew up in the underground church. I, I'm convinced, and, I, and I, I'm showing a little bit of my hand here, I'm convinced that it wasn't necessarily acupuncture. I think he may have had the ability to heal. Because I've had allergies for the last 20 years, and I haven't taken a pill in like the last four months. And now I live in Abilene. Anyway, we got into this argument about what does it mean to be the powers and the principalities, and what does that mean? How does that shape our understanding? And he said quite simply, without a bit of doubt in his mind, that every, every nation, every kingdom, every area is, is, is governed by an evil force, an evil power. And for most of the world, the, the tool that that power uses is poverty to oppress people and to hurt people and to keep them uh, in slavery. That's the most common tool. But in America, where there's, there's, not, uh, there's so much money, even, even our poor people have, have more money than most of the rest of the world, he's not using uh, poverty to, to hurt. He's, he's poisoning our food. And I said, really? And he said, yes. I said, I don't, I don't know about that. But I'm also taking gluten very carefully now. I'm not sure what to do with that. What I do understand is if we abandon the language of spiritual warfare, we may lose the language of evil. And so when you encounter that darkness, when you encounter that pain, when you encounter others that are suffering, if we lose the language of evil, we've lost any way to the vocabulary that allows us to bring light, to bring Jesus back into that place. I think we have to understand the world that Jesus lives in. I mean, this text begins in a synagogue. It begins at church, and Jesus gets up to, to preach, and he speaks with an authority that's different 
than everyone else. It's different than the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and maybe what he means by that is he just doesn't quote the Midrash like everybody else, that Rabbi so-and-so says this and Rabbi so-and-so says that. He just he speaks as the, of the text as if he wrote it himself. And in that moment, there's a question that is posed from the crowd. What are you going to do with us? And on one level, I wonder if that's a question that Israel is asking of the Messiah. But in this case, it's a man who is possessed asking it of Jesus. The man is possessed. He is in church and he is possessed. And Jesus stops his sermon to perform an exorcism. I have no idea what I would do if someone came up to me in the middle of the sermon. Because we don't have the language. We don't have the history. I do know that Josephus tells the story of another exorcist that was around Jesus' time. He had this relic. It was Solomon's knuckle that he had hollowed out and he wore it as a ring. And he would perform exorcisms on a regular basis. And uh, the way that he knew that the demon, the spirit had left uh, the person is he would set up a bottle with some water in it and the, the spirit would knock over the water as they left. And that might be a carnival trick. Or it might be real. What we do know from this text is that Jesus has power. The demons must obey him. There is no conversation or debate. There's no struggle if they can stay or go. The demons know who he is. He is the Holy One of God, which may be a reference to Elijah or maybe a reference to Samson. The world of Jesus is full of demons and angels and spirits of all sort. We just left a scene where God himself tore open the heavens to say, this is my son, my loved son. And now on the other side, we see a demon who is calling Jesus the Holy One of God. The, this beginning in the book of Mark tells us that God has arrived on the scene and it is going to change everything. The point of this story is that Jesus has power. I don't know what to do about demons. I do know that my spirit perspective on spiritual warfare uh, changed the weekend when I first began to confront an entrenched evil in my own life. When I first began to really, truly resist temptation, I began asking for more handles on what to do. Think for a minute about how socially alienating a possession can be. Demons in Scripture did terrible things, threw people into fire, made them live by themselves in cemeteries. They can't control the things that they say. There's that little girl in the book of Acts who's enslaved and turned into a money-making machine. And there's this guy who is in church and knows deep down that he doesn't belong because there's something inside of him. He feels tainted something that makes it impossible for him to truly be accepted by God or by the others sitting next to him. It's got to be lonely. Maybe you've been there too. Sitting in the pew, knowing there's something that you're dealing with that if they knew, Jesus with one sentence heals him. Jesus has power. 
And it doesn't really matter our theology of the supernatural. It doesn't matter the language that you want to use when you want to talk about spiritual warfare. It doesn't matter if this poor man was possessed by a supernatural force or held captive by mental illness. Jesus came to set him free. It doesn't matter if your whole life you feel like you've been cursed or you are a prisoner of addiction. Jesus came to set you free. It doesn't matter if the principalities of this world are named Marduk or Molech or Mammon or if they are racism, rage, or reseticism to the power of sin that keeps bringing you back. Jesus came to set you free. What Jesus came to do was show his love through his power. I love that Mark doesn't make a a big distinction between the exorcism that Jesus does in the church and what follows immediately after. After Jesus finishes the sermon, they go over to Simon's house and uh, Simon's mother-in-law has a fever and she's sick. And I know what it feels like to preach a couple of sermons on a Sunday. And I know exactly what I want to do after I'm done. I want to get something to eat. And so in some ways, I kind of wonder if Jesus's healing of the mother-in-law is in like Jesus's own self-interest, right? Because immediately what she does is get up and begin to serve them. I don't think that's it. I think the point is, is that Jesus didn't heal her halfway. It's not like Jesus went to Simon's mother-in-law who was in the ICU and healed her just enough so that she could go to a different bed in the same hospital. Jesus heals her so that she can get up to serve. And he does the same thing for us. Jesus didn't heal you, and I want you to hear me carefully. Jesus didn't heal you so that you can sit in a pew at church. Jesus didn't heal you so that you can have a nice, comfortable, middle-class life with a wonderful family and a good job that gives you enough time to watch Netflix on the weekend. Jesus didn't heal you so that you can have a comfortable retirement. Jesus set you free so that you could serve, so that we could be a part of what is unfolding in the kingdom. Do you know that there are forces of light that are encircling the darkness, and even now, the darkness is on its last leg? Jesus won the fight through the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus won the war, and now the last little bits are being mopped up, and he invites us to be a part. The truth is, Following Jesus will set you free. Set you free from hate, from anger, from addiction, from isolation. Jesus has the power to conquer every power. And he asks you the question, who do you say that I am? If you have your bulletin, I want to bring your attention to this little tear-off section that's here on the bottom. We're doing some spiritual disciplines uh, as a church for this series, and I want to invite you to be a part of that. On one side, you can put your name and uh, your email address, and on the back, there's, there's three disciplines that you can engage in this week to do them. And you can check one, you can check two, you can do them all if you want to. Um, and tear that off, and you put it in the uh, baskets on the way out uh, so that we can send you some information uh, early this week on on how to engage in these spiritual disciplines. The first is pretty simple. Memorize the scripture that we looked at today from Ephesians uh, chapter six. You know, when you memorize scripture, you fold it into your heart and no one can take it from you. 
And it's going to come out in the weirdest and oddest of ways. It's going to come to you in a moment when you need it. So spend some time this week memorizing scripture. The other is just to do a little bit of reflection, quiet reflection, and think about a time when God did set you free. Maybe you've been set free from anger or from some form of addiction. Maybe you've been set free from a problem that you've been dealing with your whole life. How did that happen? Think about that, but don't just sit on it. Tell somebody that story. The last is a pretty simple exercise. Find a post-it note and just dot down. What have you been saved from and what are you being saved for? Jesus doesn't heal us to rest. Jesus heals us to serve. And stick that on your bathroom mirror. And every time you're brushing your teeth, just reflect on that and thank God and ask God to continue to reveal his will for you.